as the Vatican Council said in Dei Verbum, number seven, by the spoken word of their preaching, by the example they gave, by the institutions that they established, what they themselves had received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life and his works, or whether they had learned it at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. That is what the apostles passed on through the apostolic tradition. Hello, and welcome to our podcast for College Catholics, where we discuss faith and spirituality from a Catholic perspective. I am your host, Father Patrick Wainwright. In the last episode, I gave a general presentation on how God's revelation passed on from Jesus Christ to the apostles and the church through scripture and tradition. Today, my plan is to, get, to go a bit more in depth so you can understand what we mean by sacred tradition and sacred scripture and the magisterium. I will bring in a guest, Father Matthew Maxwell, to talk about this, and also to explain a bit more about what is the magisterium of the church and each one of those uh, terms. After discussing these things in depth, Father Matthew will tell us a little bit about how he discerned his vocation and his recent experience about being ordained a priest for Miles Christi. So, how are you doing, Father Matthew, and welcome to our podcast. Hi, Father. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? How's your day going? Very well. Everything's going very well. The sun came out today in Michigan. In so Michigan, finally. We're, ha- we're happy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Do you have any anecdote or fun thing of your uh, history as a priest or in the process of the priesthood? Um, yeah, I was I was thinking actually. Sometimes I reflect. You know, how did I how did I end up here? And and there's obviously been some really important moments. But uh, something that's sort of funny, I guess, was before I ever even thought about the priesthood. I was 10 years old. I my family started going to daily mass, and one of my friends came up and said, "Hey, would you like to start serving mass?" And I said, "No." No, thanks. Uh, <laughs> I thought you would have said, yes. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, here you are. And yeah, exactly. And so he said, okay, no problem. He said, hey, why don't you come over here? I just want to introduce you to the priest. Um, so I went over, he said, uh, Matthew, this is Father Larry. Father Larry, this is Matthew. And uh, he wants to start serving mass. Oh, and no I said, way. No. <laughs> yes, I know. And so he roped me in. <laughs> I started serving mass. And now here I am, uh, ordained a priest. <laughs> okay, very good. Well, those details of providence, <laughs> some friends that take a friend, like... Andrew take, brought Jesus to St. Peter, right? Mm-hmm. So, incredible. Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, um, so last week, last week we shared with, uh, with our listeners how God revealed himself to man. And his revelation reached its fullness and completion in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So, after that, we understand that there's, there's not going to be any more public revelation of God that we should expect. Until the coming, of course, uh, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming of Christ. So the entire content of the revelation of God to man that was transmitted by Jesus to the apostles and by them to their successors is what we call the deposit of faith. Our Lord Jesus Christ, however, did not write a textbook or something that we could go and say, okay, this is what Jesus taught, but on the contrary, established a church on St. Peter and the apostles and entrusted to them the responsibility of passing on all those truths, the deposit of faith, to all generations throughout history. So this process of passing on the revelation that revealed truths from Jesus to the apostles and their successors is what the church has usually called the apostolic tradition. And it is assisted or helped by the Holy Spirit, which our Lord promised to the church. So that passing on of the deposit of faith is done in two ways. First, through sacred tradition, and second, through the sacred scriptures. 
And the same church who had the God-given charism to transmit these truths and to put them into writing has also the authority to interpret them and teach them authoritatively, so to speak. And that's what we call the magisterium of the church. So the idea is today to look uh, individually to one, each one of these and uh, let everyone know a bit more in depth what we mean by these things. That so many times there are words that I, I've heard them many times even when I was young, and I never could my put I could put my finger on what it meant. Right. So right. I think it's yeah. useful for all the uh, young adults that are listening to understand what each things each thing means. So first of all, what is the sacred tradition? So. I wanted to clarify that uh, this tradition is different from your ecclesiastical traditions that we hear about, and these are the things that pop up in different geographical places in the church and the history of the church, right? So those ecclesiastical traditions, as they are typically called, are local spiritual practices or even stories or legends about uh, important people or even saints. And these may or may not be valid and sanctioned by the church. In any case, these traditions, if you want to call them traditions with a little t, are not the tradition with a big t tradition. They are not one of the sources through which we get to know the revelation of God. The sacred tradition of the church is the transmission of the deposit of faith by the apostles to their successors. As the Vatican Council said in Dei Verbum, number seven, by the spoken word of their preaching, by the example they gave, by the institutions that they established, what they themselves had received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life and his works, or whether they had learned it at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. That is what the apostles passed on through the apostolic tradition. So it is witnessed, this tradition is witnessed by in the New Testament. Uh, we read about it in the letters of St. Paul when he writes to Timothy in 2, sorry, Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. He says, Therefore, brothers, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that you were taught, either by an oral statement or by a letter of ours. And referring to that tradition also, or to the content of that tradition, we have uh, in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 21, verse 25, that he says, There are also many other things that Jesus did, but if these were to be described individually, I do not think that the whole world would contain the books that would be written. So, in a sense, you see how the Scriptures contain the revelation of God, but there's much more to say, and that's where the tradition, together with the Scriptures, complete the fullness of the deposit of faith. So, this living tradition of the church is inspired and upheld by the Holy Spirit. And it is not just like an oral communication. Sometimes we think of traditions like, oh, people, what people say, the story is hearsay if you want, right? Or popular folklore. This is not what this tradition of the church means. It is not transmitted, uh, popular transmitted stories and so forth. It is a reality that can be found in specific witnesses or building blocks if you want that can be researched and studied. So, it would be interesting for us to share a little bit, what are those witnesses of the tradition of the church? Or where can the church find that tradition crystallized, right? So, these are primarily the writings of the church fathers, which we will address in a later episode and more at length, who are the church fathers and some of their writings, right? 
But we also find these witnesses of tradition and the specific development of liturgical worship rites and ceremonies, also the architectural buildings and art, and many other institutions that give a historical proof of what the faith of the church was in the first centuries after the death of the apostles. So, a great and simple example are, for example, the catacombs that are find, found in Rome. And there we find, if we visit, I don't know if you, I, yeah, you were in Rome, so there, you visited yeah. them. <laughs> uh, I was there very a few days, but I went to visit one of the catacombs. And there you can find elements that tell us how the first Catholics worshipped God and prayed for the dead, right? Another element of this, uh, another example of these historical proofs of the tradition of the church is, for example, the tomb of St. Peter, uh, which uh, indicates how the faithful actually had a certain devotion to St. Peter, and there are some graffiti there found that says, Peter, pray for us, right? And uh, so forth, and how they prayed to St. Peter for his intercession before God, and also they venerated his relics. Right. Another uh, good example of these witnesses of the tradition of the church are some archaeological findings in ancient churches and buildings in the Holy Land. For example, one that caught my attention when I visited the Holy Land uh, some years ago was the finding of an engraved tile, a piece of tile that was engraved uh, from the first centuries in the area of the Basilica of the Annunciation in Nazareth. And that tile said... Hail Mary, right? Of course, oh. in, in an ori wow. original language, right? So it was from the first centuries, and it showed how the Hail, the Hail Mary or the angelic salutation was already used, and even they mm, put it in a tile, right, to indicate that's what we regularly pray. So those things are incredible elements of this um, tradition of the church. So to summarize a little bit, quoting the Catechism of the Church. Holy tradition transmits in its entirety the Word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles, so that enlightened by the Spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. So that's, that's in the Catechism number 81. So up to there, the tradition of the church, tradition with a capital T. Right. So what can you tell us, Father Matthew, about sacred scripture? All right, well, let's take a look at sacred scripture. As we know, as Father Patrick was saying, some of what our Lord taught was handed on by the apostles uh, immediately in, in speech and teaching, etc., to their, to their disciples. But there is another aspect to that whole process of transmitting the faith which we know well, which was some of the apostles and other disciples of theirs writing down their own experience, their own witness, their own uh, account of the life, the teachings of Jesus Christ. Right, and I think one useful thing to, as we address that and talk about it, mm -hmm. they did not come together and say, hey, why don't we create a committee and put this into writing and put it in the press, right? right? So that did not exist. Right, right. These were individual efforts that each one on his own accord, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, decided to do. Right, yeah, exactly. Um, and as a matter of fact, uh, again, a, a short quote uh, from Dave Verboom. If you're not familiar with Dave Verboom, the reason we're, we're going to be looking at it so much, or it comes up so much here, is because it's the document 
from Vatican II, uh, the Council of Vatican, Vatican II, that talks about revelation in the scripture. And so we have uh, the De Verum saying, by those apostles and other men associated with the apostles who, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, committed the message of salvation to writing under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit. That's important, and we'll be looking at that inspiration in just a minute. And we have sort of that process uh, by which that writing down of their experience came about very clearly stated at the beginning of St. Luke's Gospel. Uh, the The first verses where he says, Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the word have handed them down to us, I too have decided, after investigating everything accurately anew, to write it down in an orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. That's, there you have a perfect example. Excellent. Yeah, a that's perfect excellent. example of what he was thinking and what certainly the other apostles and disciples of the apostles who wrote something down, what they were thinking, right? Right, and also it tells you how they they had a certain initiative and they put an effort and researched right. and tried to be accurate in their in their witness and their writing. Right, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. So it wasn't just like, oh, what do I happen to remember? And if I don't remember something, maybe I'll just sort of like make it up or nothing right. like that. Um, so a first uh, idea, I guess, that we could we could mention is the fact that, well, the Bible isn't just one book. It's, it's a collection of books rather. Right. Right. So it has different, a bunch of, if you study, if you study sacred scripture, a bunch of different styles, a bunch of different arguments going on, a bunch of different things that. And human authors, different human authors. And a bunch of different human (laughs) authors. However, the very interesting thing, and the reason that we can call it a collection of books or something that's united or has a thread that runs throughout the whole thing is because it still has one main author, which of course, as we know, is God. So he's the main author, but he did choose men to, uh, to put it under, to put it into writing under his inspiration. Now, how, how did that work? Well, remember that inspiration doesn't mean that God sort of physically forced their hand to write certain things. No, they're human authors and they use their human faculties their intellect, and their free will. And so divine inspiration was something much more subtle, much more profound, but that still got into the writing what God wanted to transmit to his people. There's actually an interesting story about a painting by Caravaggio, the inspiration when he's inspiring St. Matthew to write his gospel. Caravaggio did a first take on it, and he had the angel grabbing St. Matthew's hand and writing the words. And the theologians at the time saw the the sort of first draft and said, "Nope, that's not what inspiration is." Oh, good. And so, luckily, actual, yeah, luckily, <laughs> right, exactly. And so now, if you go to the church of Saint uh, Saint Luigi uh, in Rome and you see the paintings of Caravaggio, you have uh, Saint Matthew writing the gospel, but the angel is whispering into his ear. So that's more right. along the lines of representing what's actually happening in divine inspiration. Wonderful. Um, so. Uh, Again, a St. Paul uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, uh, affirms the same thing. So it's interesting because it's a quote from Scripture talking about the fact that Scripture is inspired because it says, all Scripture, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for refutation, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And right, we could say that because it is 
an inspiration from God, it is infallible. And the church teaches, I think, that the uh, Holy Spirit inspired these human authors so that they would write everything that God wanted them to write and nothing else but what God wanted them to write. Right. Yeah. So we can trust that what is in the book is what exactly what God wanted, and had, that has been defined by the church, that what we have in the Bible is exactly what God wanted these men to write, although they were using their freedom and their faculties. Right, yeah, exactly. I, I guess on a spiritual level, you can say, well, that's really interesting for our spiritual lives, because when we read the Bible, it's what God wants to tell us. Right. And it's not like you're, you have to be there thinking, is God really actually? No, no, God, everything that's in there is what God wanted to say. Right. And they wrote down only what God wanted. And that's why it's wise to say, when, whenever we read it, the word of God or the word right. of the Lord. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, again, De, De Verbum, uh, since therefore all that the inspired authors or sacred writers affirm should be regarded as affirmed by the Holy Spirit, we must acknowledge that the books of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach that truth which God, for the sake of our salvation, wished to see confided, confided to the sacred Scripture. So that the, the books of, of Scripture firmly, faithfully, and without error teach the truth of God. That's awesome. Now, there is a question there. Uh, because that is the case, then we need to know which books are inspired and which are not, which seem to be good, but they're not necessarily inspired. Right. And also, what rules, if there are any rules for interpreting the Scriptures— Right. Because obviously one thing is what we read, they're not always self-explanatory. Right, exactly. And so that that's where, thankfully, God didn't just leave us with only a book. He gave us, as you said at the beginning, an authority to help guide us, right? And so it's the, actually the authority of the church who tells us, well, what are the books that actually enter into what's called the canon of sacred scripture? The canon being that list of inspired books. Because that was a debate. There are all sorts of books that popped up um, before, around, after the time of Christ, that people were reading, thinking they were holy books, they were good books, maybe inspired books. Um, and so, little by little, the church put together what's called the canon, and that's the official list of inspired books. That was completed in the Council of Carthage in the year 397. Oh, pretty, so, pretty early. Exactly. We're not talking about something that happened in the 1800s, no. Happened right. in, it happened in the first centuries. And, and what is most important, way before Luther. Right, way before <laughs> Luther, exactly. And uh, nonetheless, because of, uh, because of Luther and the whole Protestant Reformation, the Council of Trent uh, defined that canon that was given to us earlier, uh, it defined it infallibly. And what uh, year was that? That was in uh, 1546 in, during the Council of Trent. Cool. So now what? we have, uh, yeah. So now we have the the canon of scripture, right? And it's already s uh, established. We yeah. can't add more books or take more books. That in right. stone, right? Set yep. in stone. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. What can you tell us briefly about the interpretation? How to interpret the scriptures? Right. Exactly. So we have to have in mind uh, some different criteria, some different principles, and things that the church has. The church, the church fathers, uh, different uh, doctors. The church have. Uh, proposed have shown us throughout the centuries things to have in mind when reading the scripture. Because as you probably notice, you can randomly open up scripture and it's not like, oh, it's immediately obvious. Right, always. right. And sometimes it's really difficult. And sometimes it's, it's very confusing. Difficult. Right, exactly. So we have here some uh, different criteria and principles that the church gives us in order to what's called interpret or understand the sacred scripture. So 
First and foremost, we could probably say rule number one, right, is that the church has always said that it has to be sacred scripture, has to be interpreted in line according to the teachings of the church, according to the magisterium. Sacred scripture must be read and interpreted in the light of the same spirit by whom it was written, as Dave Verbum says. Another thing. So when it says, in the light of whom it was written, or in the same spirit of whom wrote it, is the same spirit of the church, which is the Holy Spirit. So so the same Holy Spirit that inspired the the scriptures also inspires the magisterium and also inspired the tradition. So these three things go together like a three-legged stool, right? right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it wouldn't make sense that the magisterium comes out and says, "No, this kind of thing is wrong to do." And then you go to the you go to the Bible and it says, "No, this kind of thing is good to do." That's right. not going to happen. Right. 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 <laughs> so, um, uh, then we can moving on. We can say that well, it's important also. The church says to have in mind the sacred author's intention. Correct. So what what's his idea? Like what's he trying to get across? And that obviously God uses that in everything that He has in mind for getting across to us in the sacred scripture. So what was the, what's the sacred author trying to do? Um, there's an interesting, there's interesting examples, especially with that in the gospels where each gospel, uh, which where each evangelist was writing for a different reason or to a different crowd, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so that'll, that'll help you to see how to interpret what they're saying. Right. And, and why they put a stress on certain things and not so many, so much in others and other gospel writers have things that they don't say. Right. right? Exactly. Correct. Okay. That's yeah, good. Exactly. Um, and so uh, moving on, another thing we can say is that, well, we have to be very attentive to the unity of the whole of scripture itself. So you won't find if God inspired the old Testament, you're not going to find something in the new Testament that directly and openly contradicts it in the sense that, uh, completely undoing it and that, no, that was never true. Okay. No. Right. And in that sense, because sometimes there seems to be contradiction, like people Mm. are sure there's contradictions. Right. Uh, and I would say, when there seems to be a contradiction, what St. Thomas Aquinas recommends is, well, then use the easier or the simpler or the clearer passages to explain the more confusing passages, if any, right? So instead of opposing them and saying, oh, these are contradictory, say, okay, there has to be a unity, and therefore the easier or clearer passage should explain what the more complex passage means. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and then uh, moving on as well. So, another thing that the church asks us to do is, of course, read the scripture, and this is sort of following the same principles, read the scripture in line with the living tradition of the whole church. So, not just, uh, okay, well, this seems like it seems like this should be because so-and-so said this or something, or because I found this author that says this. Right. Well, no, look at what... Uh, the the principal authors of the church has always said what the popes have said, what et cetera. Right, but, throughout all history. Right, exactly. And then also we should be attentive to what's called the analogy of faith, which means that coherence of all of the truths of the faith. So this goes along lines of what you were saying earlier. Well, the Holy Spirit, who's the author, who's the one guiding the church, who's the one who inspired. Well, all of these truths of faith, they're not going to they're not going to contradict each other. Right. So if you think you find something in the gospel that contradicts, for example, a dogma, uh, a Marian dogma about Our Lady, well, I'm sorry, you're going to have to reread that, right? Right, right, and interpret it correctly. Right, exactly. Um, another interesting thing uh, that can actually help us sometimes t- 
to understand, especially more difficult passages or obscure passages, is to remember that there are actually two main senses in which different passages can be understood. So just because I find a certain text in the, in the, in the scripture doesn't mean that it has to be understood always completely literally, right? So you can understand a lot of scripture literally, right? Right. But then there's also another sense, which is a spiritual sense. Mm-hmm. So if, for example, uh, I think the prophets are likened to teeth or something like that in mm-hmm. a certain part of the Old Testament. Okay, well, obviously we're not talking about a literal understanding. Right. Otherwise you'd be in problems. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so we can have the ease um, uh, ease of conscience to, to try to interpret those more difficult passages also in a spiritual sense. Perfect, perfect. Um, of course, we also know that the uh, Old and the New Testament are intimately connected. Mm-hmm. So when we're looking at some, when we're comparing Old and New Testament, different passages or quotes from one or the other, we can always remember that well, while the Old Testament is a prophecy of the New Testament, we also know that the New Testament is always going to, is fulfilling the Old. So that means that sometimes some things that might not seem that they can go hand in hand, well, the New Testament, it's not that it's contradicting the Old Testament in different places, but that it's actually fulfilling it or giving it a deeper, more full meaning. Right, and that's why when, when people ask me about to, how to read the gospel, how to read the scriptures, instead of starting from the beginning and finish at the very end, mm, yeah. I recommend to start with the gospels, mm. then the, the letters of the apostles, because that helps first to get the meaning that is intended, the full reality, the full revelation. And then you can read the Old Testament and understand, oh, they were going, God was revealing little by little all these truths in order to foreshadow, prophesy, and uh, get to eventually the New Testament. Right. So instead of we read from the beginning to the end, then we see, why is this happening in the Old Testament? How is this possible? God, right. God is mean or something. Right. No, no. Uh, the fullness of revelation is in the New Testament. Right, right. And, um, and, and finally, Remember just that the church has always encouraged the faithful to know the content, to know what the scripture teaches, what the scripture says. Um, And in the end, because it's a way of salvation, we know what God wants to tell us. But at the same time, always remembering these criteria, these principles, so that we can understand it correctly. There's that we don't want to go about it with, uh, especially what we see so often among uh, Protestants, that this idea of free interpretation. That, right. okay, I'll, I'll pick a text and then I'll understand it according to what I would like. Right, right. I'm sure they, the, uh, the, um, the original Protestants, uh, followers of Luther, what they intended is that the Holy Spirit inspired them individually, right? Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what the church has always taught is that, yes, I can have an inspiration, but ultimately the authorized or authoritative interpretation of the Scripture is given by the church, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and therefore I should not, my interpretation can never contradict what the church has taught. Yeah, yeah. In that sense, one of the the next point that we would like to talk about is the magisterium of the church. That's a little bit more complicated. Why? What does magisterium mean, and so forth? And how can I find it? Where do I find it, and so forth? So those questions, let's address them real quick now, or in depth, but quickly. There you um, go. So first of all, magisterium means teaching or teaching authority. Right, and that's the teaching authority of the church, given by and inspired by Jesus Christ, when he said to the apostles, "He who listens to you, 
listens to me. In Luke chapter 10, verse 16. So this authority is not a man-made authority. It is given by Jesus Christ to the church and the apostles. As uh, Dei Verbum, as we have uh, quoted in the past now, uh, comes to our aid now, Dei Verbum number 10 says, The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus Christ. Up to there, the Vatican Council. So this means that the task of giving an uh, an authorized or uh, definitive interpretation has been entrusted by uh, to the bishops, sorry, to the bishops in communion with the successor of Saint Peter, who is the Bishop of Rome, by Jesus Christ, and it was not given to the personal interpretation of individual persons. Right. So, yet this magisterium of the church, we need to be well aware. Sometimes we think it can decide what we have to believe. And in reality, it's not a a power to decide what to believe. The magisterium is not superior to the Word of God, but it's its servant. That means that the magisterium is not there to decide what has to be believed, but to receive, to maintain faithfully, and to discover the meaning and teach what Jesus Christ taught to his apostles, and they transmitted to us. So, one thing that I was thinking, uh, to uh, like a comparison, right? So it's like a GPS, right? So we have in a phone a GPS system. Well, when we drive, we have the road we can go through, and then if there's uh, traffic or there's accidents or some, I don't, I never check the police, but some people check the police if there's there on the road. Uh, of course, I never do that. Um, anyway, so the point is that GPS takes that information and gives it to me and tells me what is the best way to go and so forth. So in a sense, the magisterium gives me the interpretation of the tradition and the scriptures. It's not deciding what road to go, although it, uh, with the ag- algorithms, it, makes, it gives an interpretation of the tech, of the material, but it, it, let's say, indicates according to the information what, what's the best way. So the magisterium, in a sense, if, I don't know if this uh, example can help, but I think it helps, uh, the magisterium is not there to say what are the different truths that we have to believe um, uh, in the sense of inventing them or deciding them. It tells me what it is that Jesus Christ taught and the apostles presented to us through the scriptures and through tradition, and in any case, how to apply them today to different situations and uh, situations that the world and new situations of the cultures and of history that maybe were not present when the scriptures were written, right? So we need a certain interpretation and application, and that's what the magisterium does. So as the, again, Dei Verbum number 10 says, the magisterium teaches only what has been handed on to it. At the divine command and with the help of the Holy Spirit, it, the magisterium, listens to this devotedly, guards it with dedication, and expounds it faithfully. All that it proposes for belief as being divinely revealed is drawn from this single deposit of faith. So, uh, now the question is always where to find that magisterium, how it is crystallized, so to speak. So, there's a certain... Um, elements that help us understand where the magisterium of the church is presented. First of all, the magisterium relies or is founded on the authority of the successor of St. Peter, 
and on the bishops in communion with St. Peter, or the successor, who is the Pope, right? And uh, their statements are what is the magisterium of the Church. Those statements can be dogmas of faith, because the magisterium exercises its authority to the fullest extent, to the fullest extent, when it states certain teachings with an infallible authority. So these are the dogmas of faith, statements by which the Church proposes truths as contained in the revelation of Jesus Christ, or truths that have a necessary connection with that revelation. And these dogmas of faith are presented in such a way that it is obligatory to believe these statements with an irrevocable adherence of faith in order to be members of the Church and to be saved. Then there's other teachings and documents of the magisterium, and these are put forth as symbols of faith, encyclicals, documents of the councils of bishops in communion with the Pope, that state different truths throughout history, and they are uh, elements that are presented as taught by the apostles. Now, one other element is that all these truths have an inner connection and a hierarchy of value. Not all of those truths have the same weight of importance. In the Catholic doctrine, there exists an order of hierarchy of truths, since they vary in their relation to the foundation of the Christian faith. And in that sense, we can say that the whole deposit of faith and all the truths revealed and taught by the Church are like a building, like a cathedral, and all have their own specific place and their own specific importance and value. I cannot take one without this, this arranging the whole thing, right? So that's why the, we need to embrace all of them and have an integral faith. And finally, these truths have been presented to the faithful in different catechisms throughout history that had the intention of summarizing and presenting the faith to all centuries and to all the people of God. So in that sense, we have, for example, different catechisms, the, cate the Catholic Catechism written by St. Pius X, the Catechism of the Council of Trent, the Catechism of the Catholic Church that we all know, the one written or um, published by John Paul II, and one that is after that one that we some people know, don't know so much, the Compendium of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, Uh, published or presented by Benedict the Sixteenth. So anyway, all that is uh, all the information about our uh, faith and the sources of our faith, which is very important. Now, why don't you tell us, Father Matthew? That's why the main reason why I brought you today <laughs> is to tell us about your vocation. How yeah. is your vocation? How did you decide? And how did you know that God was calling you to be a priest? Okay, yeah, very good. Um, so I let's see. I guess I would start. Yeah, with where my, were you my born? Friend who? Oh, okay, let's start there. Where I was born? I was born in San Diego. So San Diego, <laughs> sunny San, San Diego. Diego, sunny San Diego. Born and raised. Uh, my family started homeschooling when I was 10 years old. Awesome. And we found a very good Catholic homeschooling group. Um, and so through their good influence, we started going to daily mass, praying the rosary, things like that. And so I'd say it's probably when I was about 14 that I started taking my prayer life more seriously. And that's when I also started having these first inklings and ideas of becoming a priest. But I didn't, um, I didn't, Well, let's say I, I, I was only 14, and, and so I, I just had this idea, and I figured, well, one day I'll be a priest, you know? And I, I did— So you had it already 
pretty sure. Yeah, I, I had it sort of like a given. Um, wow. And so I, I didn't really even know at the time what it would mean, right? Like what, what it meant to be a priest or how you would even go about that. But I was like, no, I think, I, I think I'll be a priest. Um, and so I even, after after high school, I, I took a little bit of time and I vis- visited some different orders. And one of those orders that I visited, um, because of a friend who had met the Millis Christie uh, priests here in Detroit, um, I ended up through him coming out and visiting uh, Millis Christie. I'm no sure way. you remember that. Yeah, I remember, I remember your visit, first visit to, to Michigan. I was a, a 16-year-old little, uh, yeah, what a peep squeak or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so yeah. It, however, I, I did decide to go to college. So I went to Thomas Aquinas College. I um, before that, you did the spiritual exercises. Yeah, right at the beginning of my my first year in college. So and you, that was the first one that you you were preaching out in California. Yes, I think the first one in California, first yeah. one ever. In yeah, wow, Cali. that's that's historic. Um, yes, man, it is <laughs> in Temecula. So, um, and then shortly, uh, no, not shortly. So yeah. I, Some years later. Yeah, exactly. Because I, what I did was I, I did my four years of school there at TAC, at Thomas Aquinas College, graduated. And then uh, that's where Providence really stepped in. Um, obviously, all of Providence, uh, God was guiding all of it. But after I lost contact with all of you, I lost contact with wow. those Christy priests. I got back home. Uh, but I might, might as well say, between the first retreat that you did in 2008... 2004, sorry. Yeah, 2008. Exactly. No, it's 2004. And yeah. I, I think it was October 30, November 1st or October 31st, because I remember I went to Coronado ah. and people thought I was uh, dressed, dressed a... with a costume for <laughs> Halloween. So now I was coming to <laughs> Southern California to preach a retreat. Anyway, that was 2004. Yeah. My bad. <laughs> yep. Correction. And then between that and when you finished college, Midas Christie had started a house a house in Mida, in San Diego. So right. in 2008, right, exactly. Uh, the priests went there and established a house. Because what happened was, so I, I came back from college, and some friends of ours said, "Hey, we're having a party for some new priests in the area. Would you like to come?" I said, "Sure." And so I went to the party, and well, there there were the Millis Christie priests, and I thought, "Whoa, what are you guys doing out here?" Wow! And so that put me back in con. Providentially, that was Father Martin, probably there. Father, Martin, Father Caesar, yeah, exactly. Father yeah. Richard, yeah. Awesome priests, yeah. Yeah. founders, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out there in San Diego. So that put me back in in, in contact with the Millis Christie priests, and I started going to spiritual direction. And you know, the the my vocation, that calling from God, um, was something that that really stuck with me. Um, it, it's one of those things that, at least for me, was very deep and, and kept sort of pushing in that direction. And so I, I did start working, but I always felt like this wasn't not not what I was supposed to be doing started doing computer programming um, and realized after a year and a half that that's not what I was supposed to be mm-hmm. doing. And so with the help of Father Martin, spiritual direction, um, I decided, well, no, I, I really need to take this seriously. And so what I, told, I told everyone, well, I'm going to go and visit Melissa Christie uh, House of Formation in Detroit for a month. Wow. And so I, I came out for a month and then I, I never went back home, actually. No way. Yeah. So, um, incredible. And, yeah. And now here I am. That is awesome. So, yeah. A beautiful, beautiful path that thanks be to God. Um, yeah, here I am. That is awesome. And then finally you were ordained some months ago last year yep. in Detroit. In of Detroit. All places. Yep. Exactly. That is Who would have awesome. Ever thought, yeah. After having studied in Argentina and Italy 
Uh, back here. Well, and how long is the formation? Was the formation of Milos Christie? It was just under ten years for me. So, that is awesome. So you yeah. learned a lot. That's why you were talking so fluently just oh, now yeah. about everything. All these exactly. Yeah, hard I got a, topics. Got all on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Okay, very good. Well, thank you very, very much for sharing your story. Do you want to tell one anecdote of all these years, whether as a student, seminarian, or priest that are that can be interesting for, oh. for our listeners. Oh boy, Father, you put, you put me on the spot. Um, I guess, uh, well, one of the most interesting things was, uh, it's not a particular anecdote, but it's just in general, was going down to Argentina, um, you know, finding different culture, different language, then going to Italy, finding a whole nother uh, right. culture and language. Food. Yeah, and food. And, you know, in, 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 in Argentina, the people are so nice and welcoming and everything. And same thing in Italy, but each one has their own way of, showing that and so like right. in for example it caught would catch my attention in italy they love food and uh -huh. so they want to show you that they want to help you whereas here in america we would tend to maybe give a donation or right, an amazon it. card right yeah <laughs> so so in italy what they do is they, they they ring your doorbell and they have a flat of lettuce wow. oh good morning father it's nine o'clock here's you know a whole bunch of lettuce and you're like okay thank you wow. and so um just seeing the different cultures and, and the languages and all the you know the slip-ups when you're trying to learn different language that Wow. Has you to, to laugh a little bit or get embarrassed usually. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a beautiful experience. And uh, the question everybody wants to know, of course, is did you hear the voice of God telling you that you had to be a priest? Like, oh, right. You have to do this. Right, exactly. So I would say yes and no. <laughs> so in the sense that it's not like a, a mental voice. You don't hear like a Matthew, you have to do this. Kind right, of thing, right. right. And no. it's not an audible voice. Right, exactly. Um but in, in a real way, looking back on it, I think you can, I can say it's the voice of God because it's something that's much deeper and right. just sort of showing you in your mind that this is right. Also inspiring you in your desires that you want this um, and sort of even sometimes pushing you along in a very gentle way. And right. so I think, for example, for me, those feelings of not feeling comfortable doing what I was doing after Software. college, right? Yeah, or whatever it was really. Um, was that was showing me as well? Another right. way of showing me. So, and, and when I combine all of those things, I'd be like, "Yeah, that was the voice of God." Right. But I never heard, um, you know, a deep, right. solemn voice from heaven. Right. So it's it's the voice of God, but not the voice of God as people expect it to be right. or want it to be. Right. Right. Yeah. And in that sense, I think. Uh, sorry to uh, encroach on your story. No, no. But I think it's a good uh, reflection here for everyone who's listening. The importance of mental prayer or mm. meditation. Yeah, How exactly. that is important for everybody to, yeah. to be holy, to be saved, and also to discern anything and particularly one's vocation, right? Yeah. So uh, whether to marriage or to religious life or to the priesthood, we have to pray. Yep. And, and that's, we yeah, because that's, that's where you really, those are the strongest moments where you can actually, so to speak, quote unquote, feel God doing something within you or pushing right. you or showing you or telling you or inspiring you or moving you, all those kinds of things. That is wonderful. All right. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much. Uh, oh, we'll have pleasure. you some other episode to share Sounds more good. of your wisdom and your uh, so many years of studies. Uh, I hope that can we make another we can make another episode and speak about all these things whenever you. So want. thank you everyone for joining us today. Thank you, Father Matthew, for being with us. Uh, that is all for today. Thank you for staying to the end with us. I know it's been a little longer, but it was well worthwhile. So please make, to, make sure to check our website, forcollegecatholics.org, or share it with other people. And above all, remember to subscribe to Apple or Google, Google or Spotify. 
And if you can, or if you enjoy this um, episode, also write a review in Apple because that helps other people and inspires other people to uh, listen to this podcast and learn a bit more about their faith. So again, thank you so much, everyone, and uh, we'll see you next time. May God bless your day.